Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Paul explains here in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, that for those who love God, God causes all things to work together for their good. Now, this does not mean that God causes only things that appear to be good to happen to those who love Him. What it means is that in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture of things, God takes everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, the ugly, and causes it to come together for an ultimate good. And in the context, that is our being conformed to the image of Christ, being justified, being glorified. For those who love God, God causes everything to come together that we might become like Christ and therefore get to go to heaven. The ultimate good. However, for that to happen, we have to love God. Tonight I'd like for us to think about that for a few moments. Loving God and what that means. Now, as I pointed out this morning, we could very simply turn to a passage like 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3 and just define loving God as it says there that this is love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. But I'd like for us to look a little bit beyond that and think about our relationship with God. A growing, loving relationship. From that moment that we come together through baptism into Christ into a relationship with God, as we then continue and grow to a truly committed, loving relationship with God, what is that going to look like? What are the stages that we go through? Keep in mind that Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, compared our relationship with Jesus, the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ, compared it to the relationship between a husband and wife. And I think what we'll recognize as we take a look at our relationship with God, that really it goes through the exact same stages that any relationship that we've ever had goes through. And I'd like for us to take just a few moments tonight and take a look at each of those. In fact, I think that we'll find five stages that all relationships will go through and that we'll go through these when our relationship with God as well. As we go through these steps, some of them might not look as good as others, but as we've said about some other lessons, the point here is not to talk about what's right or what's wrong. In fact, none of these are bad. They're all good. They're all just different stages. They're all necessary stages. And so tonight, don't take a look at any of these stages as if, oh, it's bad that I'm at that stage. Instead, let's just be honest and say, here's the stage where I am, and here's what I need to do to progress to a stronger, more committed more loving stage. And so I hope that we can learn from this tonight. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty, glorious Father in heaven, we do love you. And we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you that you sent your Son to die for us so that we could be with you forever in heaven. And we pray that you would help us to grow in the love that you have for us. 
Help us to love You in return and continue on in our obedience because we love You. Forgive us, Father, because too often we've turned away from that. In the heat of the moment, as Satan hurls his traps at us, too many times we've fallen headlong. And we pray that You would lift us up, set us on our feet, and help us to walk back in Your paths of righteousness. Thank You so much for sending Your Son to die for us. Thank You for demonstrating Your love. We know that in our relationship, that, that You're not the one that has to work on love. You have truly committed love for us. But we recognize that we have so much work to do on our relationship with You. Strengthen us, Father. Help us to work on that relationship, to develop our love, to grow in You. Thank You for loving us, Father. Through Your Son's name we pray. Amen. The stages of loving God, really the same kind of stages that we have in any love relationship. We're all very familiar with the first stage, enchantment. Think back to the time that you first met that person that you're married to. And what it was like when you came into their presence, the butterflies in your stomach, the joy that you had, just just wanting to be with them. You couldn't wait to get off work so you could go spend some time with them. This, this stage of enchantment. You were just enamored. We often call it infatuation. You wanted to be around them. You couldn't stand to be separated from them. You saw all the positives and it just didn't seem that there were hardly any negatives. And if they were, they were small and could be overlooked. And you were certain, of course, that those would change because you knew that they loved you just as much. And they'd be willing to get rid of all the things that annoyed you. Oh, it was just so wonderful. And it was like, it was like riding the highs of a roller coaster. Interestingly, scientifically speaking, we're told that during this stage of any relationship, your brain actually secretes endorphins into your bloodstream. It's a chemical that, that causes feelings of well-being and contentment and happiness. And so, in reality, in that stage of enchantment, in any relationship that you have, it's almost like having a drug-induced high. I mean, it really is. It's just, wow, it's just an amazing feeling. It's just wonderful. And I'm just so excited to be, I just, oh, I just can't wait till we get together again. Anybody remember that stage? Oh, yeah. We remember that. I'm not going to ask if anybody's still in it. I, I, hopefully there's a couple here because there's a few that just got married. But that stage of enchantment, you know, really that's the way it starts when we come into a relationship with God. It's an enchantment. We're enamored with God. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here we were lost and destitute, and we met this God of grace and this God of mercy, whose, 
love sent His Son to die for us and was going to wipe our sins away. And we are just absolutely enchanted. We're enamored. We just can't help but want to be in His presence. Are they having an assembly? We're going to be there, even if we've already been to three this week. We want to study our Bibles. We want to pray. Is somebody having a Bible study in their home? We're going to be there. And we just can't understand why everybody else doesn't want to be there too. It's just a wonderful feeling. It's like butterflies in the pit of our stomach. On the highs of the roller coaster. It's enchanting. And we just can't ever imagine a time when we wouldn't just be happy in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we see folks that are in this stage and we might be confused to believe and, and might even say that they are spiritually mature beyond their years. We especially see this in new Christians. In, in folks that have been raised by Christians, they may have gotten baptized in their early teens, but we especially see this kind of enchantment usually when they get into high school and college, that time when they're finally branching out and having their own relationship with God instead of just kind of tagging along with their parents and they're really starting to figure out what it means to have a relationship with God. And we see this kind of idea there, and we look at them and we say, they're mature beyond their years spiritually, but in reality, they're not. But I just want you to think about it. Guys, come on. We see somebody who's about to get married, and we see them out at a restaurant, and, and we're sitting across with our wife or our husband, and we're just having a, a nice little discussion, and we just see them over there, and they're all lovey-dovey, and they're all holding hands, and, 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 and moon-faced, and starry-eyed. Do we look at them and say, oh, look at how mature they are. No, we recognize they're going through a stage that all of us have gone through. And that's really the same way it is with Christians. But I tell you what, it's a very important stage. If we didn't go through that stage, nobody would ever get married. Listen, if you didn't have that enchanted feeling and somebody sat down and said, let me tell you what marriage is really like. Back when you were 19 or 20 and you weren't enchanted by this person sitting next to you, would you have married them? Now, don't lie to me and say you would have. Because I know you picked somebody you were enchanted to. You didn't just marry the first thing that came along. You didn't just pick out somebody and say, oh, okay, I'll marry him or I'll marry her. You waited till you found somebody you were enchanted with. And you felt like, this is the one. Now, I'll tell you, it's really that way with God. This is an important stage because, honestly, if it weren't for that enchantment, I'm not sure how many of us would actually be willing to come into a commitment with God. I look in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And on it goes, talking about counting the cost. If we weren't enchanted with the grace and mercy of God, how many of us would really be willing to say, you know what, I really want to carry a cross. That's a wonderful thing. But see, in that stage, we just can't imagine, oh, I mean, it doesn't even feel like a cross. It's wonderful. And we want it. And we're willing to make that commitment. It's an important part of the process. But even in our relationship with God, we just need to understand this. Love never ends there. 
It continues on. And eventually, we get to the second stage. If the first stage is enchantment, then I suggest to you that the second stage is disenchantment. Now, if you're single, or engaged, or only newly married, you're probably not going to understand this point. But I can guarantee you that everybody in this room who has had any kind of experience, if they're going to be honest, can say, yeah, I face this. Because that enchantment, that magical feeling, that drug-induced high always stops. And there comes a point in marriage where you realize this takes work. I've got to do some things. I've got to do some changing. I've got to do some sacrifices. And some of those negative things that we overlooked all of a sudden become glaringly obvious. He was always late picking you up for your dates. That didn't bother you back then because you just couldn't wait till he got there. But now he's late everywhere he goes and it really just irritates you. Those kind of things. But then even some of the positive things, some of the things that you just were enamored with become somewhat annoying. What used to be creative spontaneity now seems like careless irresponsibility. What used to be an organized, orderly life now seems like somebody who's a manipulative control freak. What used to be strong, decisive leadership is now somebody who's power-mad arrogant. What used to be somebody who could just roll with the punches and just carefree and, and just nothing seemed to bother them suddenly becomes lazy and slothful. And you become a little disenchanted. This wasn't the person I married. This wasn't what I signed up for. I wasn't ready for this. And as all these stressors begin to attack the marriage, what we tend to do is move back into the scripts and paradigms and models that we developed, our coping mechanisms that we developed throughout childhood and throughout our teen years. And we just go back to those things to try to provide the contentment and happiness that we had hoped to get from marriage. And usually those things are unhealthy. For some of us, it might be outbursts of anger or, or fits of depression. For some folks, it might be drinking and drugs. For some folks, it might be sexual immorality. For some folks, it might be closing ourselves off from the relationship and just hiding inside myself. We, we just start trying to cope with things in that way because now we're disenchanted with the marriage. Doesn't that happen in our relationship with God? I know we don't like to admit it, I know we sometimes feel like it would be awfully unspiritual if, if I ever pointed out that I've ever been disenchanted with God. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I can tell you I have been. I've had times of disenchantment with God. There comes a time when all of a sudden we realize it's not all about grace and mercy and love. We come to passages like Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and find out that it's also about sacrifice. My sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We come to passages like 1 Peter 
chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, and we find out it's not just about God's grace and mercy, it's also about my obedience. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, 1 Peter 1.13 says, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we realize this takes work. I've got to do some changing. This is hard. Then this is tough for us, because see, in the enchantment phase, it was easy to do all that stuff. It just came naturally. Just, we just wanted to do it, and then one day it just kind of faded out. And now it takes discipline, and it takes stick to and tenacity. And I'm like, man, i got to get up every day, and i got to do this over and over and over again, and and sometimes we feel like we're just going through the motions and we feel like we've just lost something. Something used to be there and it's just gone. And so I, I must be doing something wrong. Maybe the way we're doing things is just wrong because I just don't have that feeling anymore. And how many Christians do we know but if at that point, you know, this is, this is the time when we most often see people that are doing things that we know, that they know, are wrong. But they'll come back to us and say, but God wants me to be happy. I, I know why they feel that way. Because they're remembering how happy they were when they first became a Christian. And because of that, they have determined in their mind that God expects them to have that same type of enchanted, enamored, almost drug-induced high all of their lives. And that if somehow they've lost it, we must not be doing the right thing. And so they begin to judge things based on how it makes them feel, not based on how biblical it is. They're just convinced that's how, that's how happy I was at the beginning. And so if I'm doing it right, I'm going to be happy like that all the time. It doesn't work like that for any relationship that we have. Why would it work like that for our relationship with God? Disenchanted. Now sometimes we take a look at these folks and we view them as having backslid. Oh, they used to be so mature and so devoted and now they've just, what happened? They became so immature. no. That's not it at all. They've actually become more mature. They've actually gone to the next stage of a loving relationship. The problem is, most of the time, we didn't realize that. It's a necessary stage. Because that's the stage that sets the groundwork for really being able to move on to devoted, committed, mature, true love in God. God never intended us to have the enchanted feelings, the roller coaster highs forever. He never intended that. He intended us to grow in our love. And what disenchantment does is it brings us to the third kind of hinge step very much tied in, and I, we're just going to call this one the fork in the road. When we hit that disenchanted feeling, that disenchanted stage, we're now at a fork in the road, and we can go one of three ways. 
See, it's, it's three different paths working together. And I'm just going to tell you, if we're going to move on to true committed love, we're going to have to take the path that's less traveled. Most folks pick the two wrong ones. The first fork in the road is to strive for that elusive enchantment. That enchantment has an alluring pull. It was so easy and it made us feel so good. And we just are sure that at some point if we're doing things right, that that's what our relationship ought to be like. Now think about this in marriage. Some folks that are striving for this elusive enchantment, they'll do this in one of two ways. The first way is they'll just ditch the relationship they're in and find somebody else that they're enchanted with. They'll decide, well, I must have been wrong. I thought this was the one, but I'm wrong. I'm going to go find somebody else, another one, who is the one. And, and, they, and they feel that enchantment. Oh, how enchanted. Maybe somebody they met at work or somebody in the neighborhood or somebody, who knows, maybe sometimes even somebody in the church. And isn't that sad when that happens? They just feel so enchanted with this new person, so they leave the first relationship and they move to a new relationship. And don't some people do that with God? They get to the disenchantment, and instead of sticking with God, they turn away from God and they move on to something else because it provides enchantment. I think we see examples of this in Luke chapter 8, in verse 14. In Luke 8, verse 14, as Jesus explained the parable of the story, he said, For what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They've gone after the cares and riches and pleasures of this life because that's where they're feeling enchantment. And so they're striving for that. And you know what's really so sad, though, is that all those things are empty. And the enchantment doesn't last with those things either. You always got to strive for more and more. And it's just a, a, a terrible cycle of emptiness. But the other way that folks sometimes strive for enchantment is that they, that with one hand, they still hang on to God. They're still going to try to be a part of God. But they're just going to try new and novel things. So think about marriage. How many folks in marriage, they, they keep wanting to get back to that elusive enchantment. I see this over and over again. They're looking for quick, easy fixes. They're going to turn around and make everything easy in the marriage relationship. And there just aren't any. I don't know how many times I've been in a, in a counseling relationship with a married couple. And they come in and they talk about how, oh, you listen, you know, we're just having trouble, but we're devoted to this marriage. We want this marriage to work. And so please tell us something that we can do. And so... Yeah, I'll talk about some great things. I might talk to him about the love languages. I love that concept, the love languages. And I'll point out to, to, to a husband who's telling me that he just wants to get love back in his marriage. And I'll say, look, you know, in order to show love to your wife, she, she views love, she sees it by words of affirmation. So you've got you've to give her affirming words. Or, or she sees love through acts of service. And so what you need to do is go home and give her acts of service or, or, or quality time. You need to go home and just spend some time talking with her about things that she wants to talk about. Oh, that sounds great. That's wonderful. And they go home, and we get back together next week. I say, how did it go? Well, it didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? Well, I tried it last Tuesday, and she still went to bed without talking to me. It just didn't work. And what they hoped is they would make one little change. Bang, it's just all, it's all good. It doesn't work that way. Or they're struggling with their marriage, and so they'll go to some marriage retreat. And I love marriage retreats. I'm sure, most of them, I'm sure, are wonderful, as long as they're based on the Word of God. And they get there, and it's just so wonderful. They're around a bunch of other couples that are trying to love each other, and they got some awesome speakers who really pump them up, and they feel really good. And so it just seems that that fire reignited, and they've recaptured the spark. And it's so wonderful, and we're going to go home, and, and now we're going to love each other forever. And the problem was all they did was just get back into enchantment. And a couple weeks later, reality sets in again. They realize they're still married to that person they were married to before they went to the marriage seminar. And they're disenchanted again. Or they might try new and novel things. They'll, 
Or maybe if we try date nights. Or maybe if somebody keeps the kids and we go on a vacation. And, they, and now listen, not that there's anything wrong with those things. In fact, those things might be part of what you do to work on the relationship. But a lot of times we're just doing them because we hope they provide some something new and novel that will make it easy again. And what's really sad is when we keep taking those approaches and we get enchanted and then disenchanted and enchanted and disenchanted, sooner or later we run out of moral options. And now we've got a world full of people that are trying immoral options to get spark in their marriage. And I almost hate to even mention this in a sermon, but one of the things I'm finding out is all the rage in the world is swinging. Have you ever heard of that? That's having open sexual relationships with other married couples. And you know why they're doing that? Well, because it provides a spark in our relationship. They're trying to hunt down that elusive drug-induced high of enchantment. And it just doesn't work. And, and doesn't that happen in folks', folks relationship with God sometimes? They want to get back to that elusive enchantment. And so they say, well, mate, we need to just try something new. You know, I, I've lost that loving feeling. And I'll tell you, just sometimes, uh, you know, those assemblies that used to leave me breathless, I can come in and out of them and never feel a thing. And so, so maybe we just need to do something new. We need to have a new way to worship, a new way to assemble, a new way to study. Maybe if we lift our hands or clap, or, or, or maybe if we change the order up, or maybe if we make the Lord's Supper a fellowship meal, or, or, or maybe if we have less preaching and more dialogue. Who knows? Now listen, I'm not saying that the way we do things right now is the only right way it can be done. And I'm not saying that anytime somebody wants to do something new, they're going down the wrong fork in the road. But the problem is, far too often, what's happening is somebody has become disenchanted and they're trying to seize that enchantment again. And they're not worried about whether something's biblical. They're worried about, how does it make me feel? And here's the problem. If that's the motivation... And you try something new scripturally. It's okay to try new things scripturally. But if the motivation is, I've got to have that enchantment, I've got to have that good feeling, after a while, that new thing is going to be old again, and you're going to have lost the enchantment. I mean, let's think about it. Y'all remember the first time we had one of our prayer meetings? I got lots of good comments about those. Oh, that's wonderful. It's so wonderful. I don't get near as many good comments about it now, now that we've been doing it for two years. That's scriptural. But if we're only doing it because it feels good, here's the problem. Sooner or later, we run out of scriptural options for new things to do. And if we have trained ourselves to pursue enchantment instead of pursuing a godly relationship based on His Word, we'll end up buying the unscriptural things hook, line, and sink. And I think we see some examples of this in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, Paul said, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, 
referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here are people that are coming up with new and wonderful ways. I've seen visions, and, and here's how we're supposed to do it. The problem is it's not really coming from Jesus. And did you notice that puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind? Sensuous sensuality? That's, that's kind of that idea of that enchantment. It makes me feel good. But it's not really coming from Christ. Or Second Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What is it that they're following after? Their sensuality. They hear this new thing and it sounds good and it makes me feel good. The way I sense it is wonderful. But I'll tell you, here's the problem. No matter what you do, enchantment never endures. Never does. And so while you might ride on some extreme amazing highs for moments of your life, the crashes are almost unendurable. So we can strive for the elusive enchantment. We can continue on down that path. Or what we might do is something called parallel relationships. Now some of this I've based, uh, and you'll see it in your outline, I found some of these stages, or at least kind of a loose model of this that I based it on, on, on a website called relationship-help.com. And I didn't use the same words necessarily, and in fact changed it a little bit, but that's where some of this information on the love stages has come from. And one of the things they talk about is in marriage relationships, you have some folks that hit that disenchantment phase, but for one reason or another, they're absolutely committed to the marriage relationship. Maybe because they believe, like you and I do, that it's a sin to divorce. Maybe it's for the kids. But they're disenchanted, they think the spark is gone, the love is gone, and it's too hard to work on it. But instead of leaving or instead of going someplace else, they have what they call on that website a parallel marriage. I'll call it a parallel relationship. So I'm still married, but now I'm devoting my energy to something else, to work, to kids, to hobby, maybe to going back to school. And so I'm devoted. That's where my energy is going. Instead of working on the relationship, I'm working on this other thing. Doesn't that happen sometimes in our relationship with God? We're in the marriage. We're in the relationship. But it, was just, it just takes too much work. It's too hard to do all of that. And so now I'm putting my energy to something else, like to my family or to my work or to my hobbies or to my pleasures. And over here in my relationship with God, I'm really just kind of going through the motions. I think we see something like this in Revelation chapter 2 with the church at Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaking to Ephesus says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
They were continuing to go through the motions, but that love, that, that motivation that they once had is just not there anymore. And they're not working on that. They're just kind of going through the motions. And what's really dangerous here is that because we're going through those motions, because we still have one foot kind of in, in the church door, we think that we're probably okay. And we want to hang on to it because we want in the end to go to heaven. But it's just too much work to really devote ourselves to it. So I, I'm distracted by all these other things. And so we're just kind of hanging out now in the disenchantment phase. Most folks like this, by the way, in marriage, claim their marriage is unsatisfactory. And I would suggest that if folks are in this stage with God and they were honest, they would claim that their relationship with God is unsatisfactory. But here's the third thing that we can do. The proper fourth. We can work at the relationship. Any marriage counselor that you go to is going to tell you you have to work at the marriage if you want the marriage to work. There are no easy answers. There are no quick fix solutions. It's not going to benefit you and help you to devote your attention to something else and ignore the marriage. That's just not going to work. If you want the marriage to work, you have to work in the marriage. And that's the way it is with our relationship with God. We've got to take this forward and work at our relationship with God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, talks about the narrow way that we need to walk on. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those, few, those are few who find it. It's hard. But see, we got so bogged down in that enchantment, we thought it should be easy. And if it's not easy, we think we're doing something wrong. No, it's hard. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says to us, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. A worker who is doing his best. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 says, For this very reason, this is Second Peter 1 and verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make Every effort, it's not going to be easy. Now, listen, the, the fork in the road is not a bad place to be. It's a place that we all end up sometime, but we've got to take the right path. And if we keep just hanging out in our disenchantment, we're not ever going to have a great relationship with God. If we keep trying to pursue that elusive enchantment, we're not ever going to have a relationship with God. I'm just going to tell you, here's what it takes. It takes work on that relationship. And if you choose that, that'll lead you to the next stage, which, of course, is the work stage. It does take work, just like your marriage takes work. If you want your marriage to work, counselors, retreats, and seminars are going to tell you, you've got to work at it. You've got to learn to work at sacrifice. You've got to learn to work at change. You've got to learn to work at communication. You've got to learn to work at problem solving. And all of those things take work. 
Well, that's like our relationship with God. It takes work, but how many of us find work really attractive? How many of us sit back and say, well, you know what I want to do is I want to just work really hard today at my relationship with anybody, let alone with God? I mean, given a choice, wouldn't we all take the easy road? But we've got to choose work. And think about it. These passages that we just read about work talks about you've got to work at rightly dividing the word and adding to our faith knowledge. Well, that's just boring in comparison to some of the great worship experiences that churches want to provide for us today. As we take a look at some of those passages, it talks about having steadfastness and self-control. Man, that's just a pain in comparison to the easy and cheap grace that some churches want to say God offers us today. When we take a look, it talks about endurance, which means sticking with it even in the face of hardship. And that's just no fun in comparison to the churches that say, look, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. But God says that it takes work. Look again at that passage in 2 Peter, because I think that passage in 2 Peter tells us where our work needs to be focused. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, your godliness with brotherly affection, your brotherly affection with love. This is where we need to be working. We need to be working on these things. And as we work on these things, then we begin to have the confident trust in God of His promise of heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You see what's happening there? Even though they're grieved by various trials, they're still resting their faith in God's promise because they've been working at that relationship now listen, we're about to move on to the final stage, but there's a reality in which we never leave this stage. This one leads into the final stage, but even once we get there, we've got to stay here because we've worked to develop the relationship, and just like marriage, it takes work to maintain the relationship. But finally, as we've done this, we've moved on to mature, committed love. Mature, committed love. You know, the enchantment phase was a wonderful phase. It had amazing highs. Had some pretty awful lows. But those who have endured and worked on their marriage relationships, gone through the disenchantment, chosen to work at it on communication and problem solving, I think they would tell every single one of us who have ever been in the enchantment phase that those extreme highs and lows pale in comparison to the great stability, soundness, of a truly committed 
loving relationship. The safety of that relationship. I mean, think about it. The enchantment was wonderful. And you just had this wonderful... But, but what if they gave you a kind of look that you didn't understand? You remember how frightened it made you? You remember how concerned you were that maybe they didn't feel that way anymore? Or maybe they sensed something that was a little bit off. But see, once you've worked your way to this developed, true, committed love, it doesn't happen. You have commitment and safety. And being able to rest in that is far more happy and content than the highs and lows of enchantment. You know, when it comes to this kind of relationship, God's the one that, God doesn't have to work on it. Romans chapter 5 points out that God gave everything so that He could love us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 says that God says, I'll never forsake you. He's not the one that's got to work on this. We are the ones that have to work on this. And look in 1 Corinthians 13, because I think this passage tells us a little bit about the love that we'll develop. Love is patient. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. It's kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When we have this kind of relationship with God, we have patience with God, waiting on His timing, instead of expecting Him to do everything on our timing. We're no longer irritable or resentful when God doesn't do things our way, but we trust Him because we know that He loves us. We're not rude or arrogant, thinking that our way is best. Because now we love God. And we've developed that relationship that says, I trust Him and His promises. And so we believe and hope all things. And so sometimes things, sometimes things look a little bit off. We're really worried about whether God loves us. But no, we don't have to be, because we know. We've worked on it. We've developed a relationship. And it's not just based on some fickle feeling. It's not based on some chance emotion. It's based on the fact of rock-solid work growing in His grace and His knowledge and growing in our trust of His promises. And so we can love it. Don't. Please don't. Be enamored with enchantment. It was a wonderful phase. It was a necessary phase. But if you hang out there, it's not going to do you any good. Work and develop your relationship so that you can have that strong, solid foundation of love. And I know why folks don't like this. Because frankly, it's just not all that exciting. Have you ever wondered why most of Hollywood's movies are about the moment that folks fall in love and not about working it out for the rest of their lives? I remember the first time I noticed this. Anybody remember Karate Kid? You know, that whole movie, he's fallen in love with that girl, and at the end of it, I mean, it's wonderful, he's finally won the girl, and then they came out with Karate Kid 2. Anybody see Karate Kid 2? First thing he learned is he broke up with that girl. 
Why? Because it's not exciting to talk about how he made that relationship work. We've got to have him broke up with that girl and falling in love with another one because that's what's exciting. Ooh, it's enchanting. It's wonderful. Sleepless in Seattle. Wow! He fell in love with her. It's wonderful. But as soon as they fall in love, it's over. How did, what happened after that? Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, they just ended with that very cryptic, they lived happily ever after. Does anybody really believe that? That's why they call it a fairy tale. Ooh, that's exciting. Making the relationship work is really actually kind of boring. It's kind of dull, but I'll tell you what. There will come a point when you have been lifted on the rising tide of a growing, sound, developed love, and you'll realize you've attained highs greater than the crashing waves of enchantment ever gave you. Where are you in your relationship with God? None of these are bad. They're all good. They're all necessary. We all go through all of them, hopefully. But where are you? And what do you need to do to progress to the next level?